This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, we'll be exploring clinical variation and how one health system addressed the issue in its hospitals. But first, we have a new feature on the podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you've no doubt heard the discussions between our writer and editor, Rich Daly, and HFMA director, Chad Mulvaney, as they review current events and provide perspectives for finance leaders. Starting this week, they'll be delivering those insights in every episode with their segment, Beyond the News, and you can hear it right now. This is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Joining me today on the Beyond the News segment is my colleague, Chad Mulvaney, a director in healthcare financial practices for HFMA. Today, we're going to talk briefly about some of the recent healthcare reform developments and what they mean going forward. Welcome to the uh, podcast today, Chad. Hey, Rich. Good to be chatting with you again. So we've seen a, a lot of recent legislative and judicial developments around healthcare reform. Trying to cut through some of the noise here, uh, will any of these uh, developments matter six months from now? You know, I think obviously repeal and replace is off the table for the moment. I also think the Dems bill that's going to buttress or that would buttress the ACA is off as well. You know, one is a non-starter in the House. The other is a non-starter in the Senate. And the only way a replacement ACA package moves prior to 2020 is if the ruling in the suit against the ACA brought by the Texas Attorney General and several other conservative state AGs makes it to the Supreme Court and is upheld, which for a lot of different reasons, including timing, I think is highly unlikely. So, you know, repeal and replace is going to have to wait till after the 2020 election. Certainly a lot of other things in D.C. that I think are probably worth watching that will impact providers. There was a, a hearing this week in the House on surprise medical bills. Um, can you give us a, a quick update on that? Rich, that's a great call out of something that will definitely impact hospitals, physicians and health plans. And so out of the House hearing, similar to what we've seen in the Senate, Everyone agrees the consumer should be taken out of the middle. The brass tacks of this are really just how do we do it? So do we use arbitration, which more or less favors providers like what's currently done in New York State? Or do we cap the percentage payment for out-of-network bills at a percentage of Medicare and or bundle payment for emergency services and make the payment to the hospital and let the hospital figure it out with the ED groups that provide coverage? Um, which obviously the health plans favor. Right now, in terms of timing, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a waiting game. We're trying to wait out the, the score from the Congressional Budget Office. So what's the financial impact, which I would expect that probably in the next three, four weeks. So we'll have a pretty good indication maybe of where Congress is going to go. And I think whichever approach, air quote, scores are, is most favorable to the federal government and the debt and deficit 
it's probably going to be the one that makes it into the final legislation. In terms of what's being scored, there's actual legislation that the uh, Congressional Budget Office is, is calculating the financial impacts from? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't say that it's, I mean, it's, it's in the legislative language, but essentially what's been sent are different options for addressing surprise billing. And so then the CBO will sit down and go through, you know, here's what happens if we cap it, if we cap out of network payments at X percent of Medicare, or here's what happens if we move to a New York style arbitration model. And I'm assuming there would be some, some minimum amount at which would have to be arbitrated, but it's, it, it's working those different ads. And unlike, Health reform legislation, there's a, a very good chance that uh, surprise medical bills will move through Congress within the next year and a half. I would expect to see something on surprise bills move probably before the end of the Fed physical year, because after that point, we start to get into campaigning season. Uh, are there any recent developments um, you know, in Washington that, that will matter more down the road, like after the 2020 election? You know, I think after the 2020 election, obviously... Um, Depending on the outcome of that election, you've either got an attempt at repeal and replace, which the president has now sort of the latest, at least as of 11 or 1044 a.m. East Coast on April 4th, is that they're going to try to produce a bill before the 2020 election. His thought is Republicans take back the House and maybe expand their margin in the Senate, that they would have a vote on the repeal and replace bill that they produce. And my guess is it's going to look very similar to the the Cassidy legislation that was the, the sort of the backbone of the, the previous repeal and replace efforts. And on the Democratic side, what if uh, we have a Democratic president and uh, they control uh, Congress as well? They'll, you know, if they retain the House and have the White House, I'm, it's hard for me to see a scenario in which they could retake the Senate, much less get a, a supermajority. Um, but certainly you could imagine that they would try to put forward the bill that was introduced last week that essentially expanded the, the subsidy to the ACA up higher the income bracket and then also provided more funding for navigators, tried to, tried to shore up the federal exchanges as well. And uh, so there's been a lot of talk about uh, Medicare expansions. Uh, is that you, not realistic to think that there was a Democratic administration that that would be on the table? I, I, I would be highly skeptical, again, because without them having the Senate, uh, any effort at a Medicare for all, even something that's relatively light in terms of Medicare for all expansion, like the Payne Bennett bill that was introduced this week that would make Medicare available as an exchange offering for individuals who didn't have coverage in initially in exchanges where there weren't competition or exchange markets where there wasn't competition and eventually being available to anybody to purchase you know, even that to me feels like a non-starter in the current environment, although I suspect that public sentiment will move in favor of that as more and more Americans are priced out of current coverage. So another thing, uh, one last quick point to check on, um, there's been a, a raft of, of regulatory developments recently impacting ACA implementation. Um, well, which of these uh, will matter the most to providers and payers? And certainly, Rich, that's that's spot on. And depending on your point of view, it could be a rash. Um, you know, Arkansas and Kentucky had their work waivers go back to the drawing board because of the court decision. However, that's obviously not slowing the administration down. We saw Utah uh, that same week have their partial expansion waiver approved. and It did have a work requirement in it, although it was slightly different than what Arkansas and Kentucky had proposed. Uh, Idaho is still trying to figure out in its state capital between their House and their Senate 
what the work waiver that they'll request from the government will look like. And then on the sort of expansion front, certainly Maine just had its expansion model approved, and that will be retro to July 2nd, 2018. And then Nebraska, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, will expand, but evidently they're going to have to wait for another 18 months based on events in, in, in the state capitol. Well, uh, thanks a lot for the, for the quick update and all that and, and insights on where this is all sort of heading there, Chad. Hey, no, no problem, Rich. Always, always good to talk with you. For more on the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice, please check out our news site at hfma.org forward slash news. The healthcare transformation is gaining velocity. From new startups and mergers to enormous cross-industry partnerships, change is coming. We invite you to be bold, to lead the change. Join us for the HFMA Annual Conference in Orlando this June. Get the tools you need to take action. Learn more at annual.hfma.org. It's no secret that finding ways to bend the cost curve is one of the most pressing issues in healthcare today. HFMA's annual conference, which takes place in late June in Orlando, will feature a variety of sessions on efforts to tackle costs. In one such session, leaders with Washington-based Providence St. Joseph Health will present Using Variation Analysis to Engage Clinicians and Staff in Improving Value. The health system trimmed $20 million in costs through the first two years of their initiative. HFMA editor Nick Hutt recently spoke with two leaders to get their insights. This is Nick Hutt. In this interview, you'll hear from Kevin Fleming, Chief Operating Officer for Clinical Program Services with Providence St. Joseph Health. And first from Caleb Stoll, MD, Enterprise Director for Value-Based Care, as he describes how the organization went about obtaining the data needed to implement a system-wide strategy to address clinical variation. Uh, I think it starts with the leadership commitment. There was a desire to better understand the value of the care that we deliver across our ministries. That was particularly salient given financial pressures that most provider systems are facing. And so understanding how we can optimize the delivery patterns to get better value, deliver greater out, better outcomes at lower costs, uh, you know, is the central part of our organizational strategy. And that leadership commitment was required to do things that hadn't been done before, like integrating financial data with clinical data, getting our folks who oversee our financial data systems to see the value in that and open up that financial data to broader access. Once that was in place, there was certainly the blocking and tackling of building out the data models that incorporate those two perspectives and a lot, a lot of refinement in analytic methods and taxonomies that make that data more meaningful and more explorable. Uh, but all of that was really built upon a leadership commitment to answer the right question that led to bringing the, the data together, then to building the tools that would surface the impact of practice variation across our system. Caleb then talked about the conclusion that leaders were able to draw from the data. Well, the thing that was immediately clear once we started analyzing the data was the extent of practice variation across the system. And what we found as we dove deeper is that practice variation happens in all different types of practices. Uh, we wrote an article on this uh, in the New England Journal Catalyst that we subtitled Endless Forms Most Beautiful which was a quote from Charles Darwin, recognizing the variation that exists in the natural environment. And in many ways, the variation we see in healthcare mimics that. 
where because physicians or clinicians more broadly are trained in, in many different places, they pick up various practice patterns, various interpretations of evidence that are distinct from each other. And until recently, we really haven't had the ability to visualize that difference. And once we started doing that, we could see that was there was tremendous variability. There was variability in the aggregate of the total cost to deliver a particular episode like a joint replacement. And that total cost variability was not correlated with quality. So there were people who were high cost, low quality. There were people who were low cost and high quality and in between those two. And so we started asking ourselves questions of, well, what are the practices that lie underneath those who are low cost, high quality, and are those things that we could replicate? Those practices include for joint replacements where we've done the most detailed analysis, differences in the choice of a vendor or a particular product line within a vendor. They are differences in the use of fibrin sealants or in different pain medications, differences in the length of stay, differences in the operative time, differences in how physical therapy and occupational therapy are used post-discharge. And those are the ones that are top of my mind. There's probably more. So relatively straightforward to describe the differences. And some of those were more easily amenable to change. I asked Kevin, once they knew what changes they wanted to make in terms of practice patterns, how challenging was it to ensure these changes would be implemented across such a large health system? We were somewhat lucky that several years ago, the organization had started to bring together groups of clinicians and administrative leaders from across the health system in like-minded service line areas uh, called clinical institutes, where we bring together folks who are focused on care for similar types of patients. So we had a foundation in place where, as this information became available and this new tool was developed, we had an opportunity not just for Caleb and his team to have folks to take the tool out to refine it, make the tool stronger, but also when we did identify areas that were not value-enhancing costs, that we make it try and address, encourage practice change where appropriate. We had settings in place and teams in place that we could work with, uh, not just from the health system pushing things down, but getting involved regionally and locally at the individual hospital ministry level to try and put this transparent information in front of the clinicians, give them an opportunity to look at their data as compared to other caregivers and clinicians across the health system and ask questions and get hopefully actionable data that they could respond to and, if appropriate, make changes in their practice patterns. And we did see that uh, successfully take place in orthopedics as an area and joint replacements that we worked on, but others included spine surgery, several cardiovascular procedures, a number of other areas across the system and some of our key service lines. Kevin next spoke about the trends that Providence St. Joseph Health has been seeing since implementing this initiative. The orthopedic group was one of the first start using this. And so we've seen changes, I guess, in, in two key areas. One is in clinician behavior and, and their practice patterns. We have seen a number of changes, whether it's implant selection, the type of implant, pharmaceutical agents that they're using, the approach to pain control, kind of the pathway that patients go through that has impacts into length of stay or even what happens in the perioperative environment. But I would also say we approach this not just from a encouragement for physicians to enhance their practice patterns. We also looked at it as an opportunity for the health system to make changes in how we do certain things that we had always done a certain way. 
Caleb mentioned some of our contracting, it became very clear that the approach we had taken to engaging with the vendor community wasn't bringing an optimal result. And so by sharing this data with physicians and getting some of their feedback on the key pieces that mattered in those negotiations, we feel like that we as a health system are actually now uh, you know, approaching our relationships with vendors in a different way, that continuing to provide our physicians with the tools that they need to do their job, but doing so in a manner that really does focus on value um, and the outcomes that we're able to provide for the patients. Much more on this topic, along with plenty of additional insight on bending the cost curve and on various other key trends affecting the healthcare industry, will be available at HFMA's 2019 annual conference, June 23rd through June 26th in Orlando. For information, visit annual.hfma.org. Unlock practical industry resources by joining HFMA. An HFMA membership includes free access to more than 60 live webinars, also available on demand. Plus, gain access to expert regulatory analyses, industry news, live and online learning programs, professional certifications, and more. Explore the value of HFMA membership at hfma.org benefits. Before we move into our Fast Five, if you're interested in hearing more about the topic of today's podcast and plan to attend HFMA's annual conference, which you've heard so much about in today's episode, you might consider the Bending the Cost Curve cohort. I'll give you the link one more time if you'd like to learn more about our conference, annual.hfma.org. Now, five components of a comprehensive methodology to establish evidence-based guidelines and reduce clinical variation. Periodic Guideline Review The editorial team writing the guideline should include a panel of medical experts led by a physician specializing in the particular diagnosis, procedure, or test. Literature Search and Review A guideline development group made up of clinical researchers should search the medical literature for evidence of best practice and conduct complete article reviews with grading of each study based on qualities such as sample size, study design, population sample, results, study sponsorship, and conflicts of interest. Clinical Recommendation Consensus Based on draft recommendations, medical panels comprising physicians and other clinical professionals should conduct discussions and reach consensus on the strength of evidence for each topic and finalize recommendations for all clinical questions. External peer review and input from stakeholders. An external peer review is necessary to ensure that all relevant high-quality scientific literature related to the topic has been incorporated in creating the guideline. Then, the revised or new guidelines should be reviewed by clinicians in the field. Alignment with established standards. As the final step, the guideline development methodology and oversight should be aligned with national and international guideline creation standards. This information came from A Finance Leader's Guide to Evidence-Based Clinical Guidelines. To read this and other articles with valuable takeaways for finance leaders, visit hfma.org. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. The Beyond the News segment is produced by Rich Daly. Additional reporting this week was done by Nick Hutt. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler and Michael Shorvat. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast in Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really does help us get more exposure. 
If you have questions for our team, or if you have a story you'd like to tell, please contact us at podcast.hfma.org.